When you visit Venice, be sure to be nice to the folks who take you around the canals on the gondola. Yeah, they are the kings. The gondoliers are the kings of the canals. Coming up, guides from Italy give us insider advice for finding the age-old serenity of Venice, even if the crowds of other tourists are getting in your way. They call Rome the eternal city because you can still walk the same pavement and even enter the same buildings as the citizens of ancient Rome. Nothing brings you back to the spirit of what it was like to be in that city at that time, quite like being inside the Pantheon. And go back to the Renaissance and imagine the look on the face of Pope Julius II when Michelangelo revealed what he'd painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. This great display of, of human bodies on the ceiling, it was enormously popular. Get ready to really see Italy in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. 2,000 years ago, the word Rome was synonymous with the idea of civilization itself. Today, as Italy's political capital and the spiritual home of the Catholic Church, it's also a living, open-air museum. Anyone can get a feel for its majesty through the centuries just by looking at the grandeur all around you. Just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we look at the artistic triumphs of Michelangelo in Rome, and we'll see how you can read the city's history in its great buildings and monuments. Let's start the hour a few hours away by high-speed train in Europe's best-preserved city, Venice. The city that once ruled the Mediterranean has now become a tourist mecca. You could call it an adult Disneyland. The biggest complaint I hear from people who visit Venice is about the crowds of tourists that can clog its streets and piazzas during the day. But there are ways to experience something more real, more romantic, more legendary in Venice. As a city without cars, Venice can offer some interesting options to help you understand why the city is nicknamed La Serenissima, the most serene place. Tour guides Elena Zamperon and Lisa Anderson specialize in leading American travelers around Italy. They join us now for a fresh look at Venice from the streets and from the water. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Hi, Buongiorno. Lisa and Elena, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, when people first come to Venice, I think the first impression is quite important. Elena, what are the first, when somebody comes to Venice, how do they first see it? They see finally for the first time that it's not a Disneyland city, it's not a Vegas city, but it's a real Venice with the real locals that really exist. We and live on the island. It's a, and it's a world apart. It Literally, apart from the mainland, it's yeah. uh, connected by this causeway yeah. where you've got trains and cars coming in. And Lisa, I've uh, a lot of times I've flown into Venice, and mm-hmm. you've got a, a modern airport. Oh, and absolutely. And from the airport, you Very hop efficient. right on a, um, this, the equivalent of a bus, which zips you right downtown La Laguna, which can bring you right into town, to St. Mark's or to Zatara, to various places in the city. Within walking distance, most likely, of your hotel. Also, a lot of people will side trip in from cheaper hotels on the mainland, won't they? People come in for day trips. That was the first time I ever came to Venice was from Verona. Took a train in, walked from St. Mark's Square. We got poured on. Summer storm. You could have had a bar of soap and taken a shower out there. And we didn't want to catch the Vaporetto back to the train station. We were zigzagging through the streets of Venice just looking for signs that said uh, Stazione Ferrovia. So follow the signs. That's exactly. How, this, this, don't try to follow streets because there's really not streets in our kind of sense. But you have signs very clearly indicating where's the train station, where's the main square, where's, where's Rialto, the big church, Academia. and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, Elena, you've grown up in Venice, actually, and 
it must be amazing for you to watch the tourism just come in like a tide, sinking the city in, in, oh, in yeah. a bunch of commercialism. Where do you go to find the Venice that you grew up with? Is there a parallel Venice for people who live there? Oh, yeah. Just a little bit away from the main sites. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you can find it. Even though it's an island, there is just very little streets away, just one, two blocks away from the main sites. Uh, you can find uh, the local people sitting on a bench, chit-chatting or drinking wine. And you can even sit down with them and they are going to talk to you even though you are American uh, because they try to speak Venetian slowly, 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 and they think that that's American. <laughs> they try to speak Venetian slowly so that you can understand? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what's an example? Tell me something in Venetian, fast and regular, and how you uh, tell me. Let me think like... Uh, uh, perché non ti va a San Marco? Why don't you go to San Marco? Or why don't you drink wine? Perché non ti bevi vino? <laughs> okay, then how would you say it to me? Because I don't understand you. <laughs> like, perché non ti bevi vino? By using hands and many gestures. That's and then the... I still don't get it. So you of would course. go more hands of and course. you would go even slower. <laughs> now, when you're in Venice, um, it's a world of canals. Yeah. So how do you enjoy the canals of Venice as a as a uh, Venetian? Yeah, I've, I've been rowing many times, uh, standing like gondoliers. I am not a gondolier. That is just for men, of course. But right. uh, it's nice. You can see a city from a different level. From sea level, it's totally different. So you do it by a kayak? By kayak and also by rowing. It's, it's totally different. And we used to say that Venice can be approached by two different points of view, one from the streets, and one from the canal. So if you have always always walked down the streets and across the bridge and turn left to go to school, eh, with the canal, you got to go around and around. It's a different city, very now, different now, city. Lisa, I've noticed that myself uh, doing a very touristy thing, taking a gondola ride. When you get in that gondola, even though it's very touristy, you and your favorite travel partner and up to six people to share the price if you're on a budget. And that's how Venice is supposed to be seen, from water. It is a different Venice, It is a it? different Venice, and it's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, one of the things that if somebody plans ahead when they go to Venice, have you ever done a rowing lesson with rowvenice.org? That's one of the funnest things I've ever done, and you really get back in some of the... Is it oaring, like in a rowboat, or is it actually with a a single oar like a Venetian gondola? You're on a single oar like a Venetian gondola, but you're on a boat that's a little Mm -hmm. bit broader. It's not quite as rocky, and you can... So it's gondolier for beginners. It's gondolier for beginners. Exactly. And you learn the commands in the canals and how to tuck your oar in while you're cruising down the canal, and you can work as a team because it's a boat that can be rowed by one person or two people. Okay. But there is a, a, a physics of powering a boat with Absolutely, one oar. Absolutely, and it's it, hard. I love when I'm in the back streets of Venice, Elena, to hear the, the sound of the gondoliers. I, they make some oi or something like That's that. That's true. Oi, oi. It means I'm coming. It means I'm coming. Because <laughs> so, there's Because there's a blind corner. Yeah. And if you don't know, there too, you could have a gondola crash. <laughs> yeah. And then I love the graceful way they actually put their foot on the wall and push around the corner. It's yeah. just the gondolas are one with the city. Yeah, they are the kings. The gondoliers are the kings of the canals. And they are very elegant. And the gondola itself, it's very scenic. Now, you're a, a young woman who's growing up in Venice. Uh, what do you think about the gondolas? None of them are listening right now. What do you think about the gondoliers? What are they like? What kind of <laughs> culture is that? I think that... It's a craft, and it's an art. To be the gondolier. Yeah, yeah. to be the gondoliers. But, but I'm, I'm talking about just they're, they're romantic. 
the romantic way to to move the, the players, oars. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I heard that in Venice, if a girl falls for a gondola, they, they say she she has ham over her eyes. It's like she's very. Isn't that a phrase? Or it something? can be quite yeah, flirty. It's a phrase of it. yeah. <laughs> you got, if you fall in love with a gondola, you got a ham over your eyes yeah. because he's he's can be more romantic than the reality. Yeah, they can see too many girls each day. Mm. Oh no, too that's hard. a problem because they've got all of these romantic girls in their boat. Yeah, yeah, and kissing each other and helping them to get off. Oh, come on, complicated oh, world. Compli- a complicated <laughs> world, that's right. Italy-based tour guides Elena Zemperon and Lisa Anderson are with us on Travel with Rick Steves to help us navigate our way through Venice. Their insider advice can help us get around the crowds of day-trippers and cruise ship passengers that can often make it a challenge to enjoy the most popular parts of the city. There are days in Venice during the high season where there are as many tourists coming on a day trip as there are Venetians that live there. Mm. Doubling the population. It's overwhelming. So how would you get off the beaten path in Venice? Because in a lot of ways, it seems like it's just completely inundated with tourists. I, I, by the way, I recommend spending the extra money to sleep right in Venice, not on the mainland. But what would you do to get off the beaten path? There? Oh, a couple of things I would do. One, if you're going during the high season, the Doge's Palace in the evening has been opened on weekends, Friday and Saturday nights, and they stay open until 11 o'clock at night. And I'm pretty sure that they're going to continue to do that. I think the last entrance is at 10 o'clock. And you have the place to yourself. It is mm. fantastic. Nice. So this is so summer, you do it in the evening, Friday or Saturday night in the summertime, and it is marvelous. And that's the Doge's Palace? The Doge's Palace. And that's going to be one of the busiest places you could possibly go during mm-hmm. the day. That's good advice. And just wander, get out into the other neighborhoods. I love Dorsoduro because a lot of people just kind of get disenchanted with the crowds in St. Mark's. They're the things you have to see. But if you can take the time and get off the beaten path in Venice... It's a whole other world. You know, I was I was in Venice for 12 days in a row as we shot two TV shows. For 12 mornings, I got up and I walked across town to meet my crew. And I noticed I was up every morning and working by about 7 o'clock or 7.30. The city is a different city between 7 and 9 in the morning. And it's a different city after 6 o'clock in the evening. Be out early, be out late. My treasures were walking across Venice before the tourists did. It was just me and the local workers heading off to their place of employment, and it was a different city. Ellen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you can you can meet the street sweepers. You can see children going to school with their grandparents. It's lovely. You can really appreciate the city as it really is, uh, with no crowds, no people walking around, no tourists, uh, no people just uh, struggling for finding souvenirs or stuff like this. So there is... I mean, you, as a Venetian, you have to accept tourism. It it butters your bread, we like yeah, to say. Yeah. You know, it, it brings your economy. But there is a community. And if you're up in the morning or out late at night, you can actually feel that community of Venice. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Elena Zamperan and Lisa Anderson. And I'd love to just cap this discussion with a, an example of La Serenissima. I just, I love to say that. It's the serene place, the most serene place, Venice and if you could just describe one beautiful, tranquilo moment in Venice, uh, Lisa and then Elena, to just inspire people to go to Venice and find that magic. So one of my favorite places to go in Venice, even uh, at the busiest time of day, is uh, Campo Santa Margarita. It's a funny sort of triangular-shaped campo. Lots of students because the university's near there. And there's always a little local market, a little fish market, fruits and vegetables every single day except, I think, Sunday. And I remember this very elegant woman one day walking across the piazza, uh, una veneziana, a lady, probably 85 years old, in a beautiful suit, high heels, 
just sauntering across the piazza. It was beautiful. So no famous canal there, but definitely no. the local character, the university district. It's and a it's place to get a spritz. Sen- it's a good aperitivo scene, isn't <laughs> mm-hmm. it? I it's love fabulous. to go there early in the evening, and there's always a lot of students hanging out and buy a spritz. Uh, that's the, the fancy drink that kids like. And remember, Santa Margarita, it's a small island, and it looks like it's a long ways away, but you can walk there in 20 minutes from all the tourist action. It's in the area of Dorsoduro, uh, Campo Santa Margarita, and it's fabulous. Elena, what would you recommend for a visitor to enjoy La Serenissima? Rialto at night. The Rialto at night. Yeah, I mm-hmm. know. During the day, it's crowded. It's overwhelming. You don't really appreciate the, the beauty of the bridge or the beauty of the shops all around. But at night, you can sit down on a wooden raft, uh, drinking a spritz, and you're just alone by yourself. In Rialto? No, along the Rialto Bridge. Uh, once the you go down, uh, Yeah, very close to the fish market. So there's the market there, and there's all yeah. these wonderful little taverns and bars. Yeah. And at night, you get your drink, and you sit there. It you can is. drink. A lot of times, I'm out at 10 o'clock enjoying that scene, and I just think, people are back in their hotels complaining about the crowds. Take a siesta. Be out at 10 o'clock. Yeah, you can enjoy the sunset on the Grand Canal, and that's magic. I love it. Elena Zamperon and Lisa Anderson, mille grazie and buon viaggio. Grazie. Grazie, Tarik. Let's head to Rome next to see how its historic architecture can speak volumes about the city's long and complicated history. And while we're in Rome, we'll look at how the works of Michelangelo continue to define what beauty and genius mean to us 500 years later. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Like so many travelers, when Philip Barleg first arrived in Rome, he was fascinated by the first ancient site he saw. It was the ancient wall of the city, which the train passes as it arrives in Rome. I remember that myself. Wandering through the city's temples and forums on that trip, Philip realized how little he knew about Roman history, and he vowed to return better prepared. That vow turned into a book. It's called The History of Rome in Twelve Buildings, and it's meant to tell the stories of the eternal city through its great structures. Philip joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to take us on a tour of ancient Rome's iconic buildings. Philip, thanks for being here. Rick, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, what a cool idea to take 12 great buildings, not necessarily the best buildings or the most important buildings to see, but buildings that you can sort of weave the story of Rome together. Can you just give us the 12 with a, just, a, just a sentence about each so we know the breadth of your book, starting with uh, the Via Sacra? Sure. Thank you. The Via Sacra is the ancient road that you'd be walking in the footsteps of titans of Roman history, uh, Caesar, Augustus, etc. So if you want to really commune with the ancient Romans, you can walk where they walked. And the Via Sacra is the ceremonial street in the middle of the Forum. And if you had happened to be in a cage on one of those processions going down the Via Sacra, you might be dropped off at a prison at the top of the hill nearby. What was that? That's the Mamertine prison. Uh, Rome didn't have ancient prisons, but this was a place where they held the worst enemies of the state while they figured out what to do with them. Spoiler alert, Mm. usually they killed them. Ah. And the Temple of Caesar? The Temple of Caesar, you can go visit the actual last resting place of Julius Caesar, put flowers or a coin on his tomb, or curse him if that's your inclination. But uh, it's the remains of where he was uh, his funeral pyre in 44 B.C. And there still are flowers. People bring flowers to this spot. Uh, the Ara Pacis, that's, a, that's, to me, a very exciting spot. Yes, the Temple of the Augustan Peace. Uh, again, in the theme of walking in the footsteps of the greats, you can go to the same altar that the Roman Emperor Augustus would have walked up, would have sacrificed, would have thanked the gods, probably would have asked them to stop killing all of his chosen successors, 
but you're right there with Augustus. And the mausoleum of Augustus. Yes, so it was the uh, first massive mausoleum built in ancient Rome. It's recently reopened after a very long and expensive uh, renovation, so you can go be where Augustus and all of his descendants were interred. Now, some of these um, great buildings of ancient Rome, some of us, many of us, might not uh, be familiar with, but everybody knows the next one, the Colosseum. Yes, the Colosseum, the famous amphitheater, host of gladiator fights, naval battles, wild beast hunts, and also some of the most uh, depraved debauchery from the Roman emperors themselves. So great chance to see the glory and the lows of Rome all in one place. Mm, the whole movie-inspired thumbs-up and thumbs-down business. Uh, I like Piazza Navona, and it's filled with Baroque fountains, but it's also got an ancient history, Piazza Navona. Yes, so the Roman emperor Domitian was overthrown and his memory cursed all of his buildings. He was a prolific builder. Most of his buildings fell to ruin, and that particular Piazza Navona is the shadow or the footprint of a stadium that he built. And if you look real carefully, you can actually see you're standing on the racetrack where the best athletes in Rome would have competed, and uh, he's still hiding there. You just have to know yeah. where to look. You know, the Piazza Navona is a great example of how echoes of Rome survive uh, over the centuries, people building around it or over it or uh, whatever. And, and today, if you know where to look, you can see those little indications of ancient Rome. But you don't need to be a sleuth to see and appreciate the Pantheon, which is just a couple blocks away from Piazza Navona. The Pantheon is the world's most perfectly preserved ancient temple. Uh, it has the original key to the original doors nearly 2,000 mm -hmm. years later. It, it, it's, uh, Rome is an ancient city on the outside of the Pantheon, and you're in an ancient city when you're inside the Pantheon. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. There's four more sites on your list. The Baths of Caracalla. Why did that make the cut? Caracalla was a bloodthirsty emperor by any measure, might rank as the very worst of all of the Roman emperors, and he tried to wash away the sins of blood with the purifying waters of the baths. Hmm. Spoiler alert. That didn't work either. <laughs> and probably keep your people happy by giving them a nice, giant public spa. The very first thing you saw that was 2,000 years old when you came into Rome on your first trip was out the window of the train, the walls of the city, the Aurelian walls. Right. The massive walls that are largely intact, that still ring the majority of the city of Rome. You get a chance to be right up close and personal with some of the most impressive ancient fortifications ever built. And the next one is the site that reminds us that the last century of Rome was Christian, the Scala Santa. The Scala Santa, the sacred stairs. Uh, these are the stairs that went up to the Praetorium, the mansion of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And they are the stairs that allegedly Jesus would have walked on his way to his famous trial. You can not walk the stairs, but you can kneel and pray your way up them. Uh, it's a very moving, moving place to be. And the last entry in your book is the Column of Focus. Right. Focus, it was the last monument built in ancient Rome. Uh, it was looked at the transition between ancient and medieval. Uh, Focus was a Byzantine emperor. And if you're picking up on a theme, kind of spilled a lot of blood in his time there, too. So a glorious monument to an inglorious hmm. man. Wow. Okay, so that's that kind of lays the groundwork. By the way, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Philip Barlag. We're getting to know Rome as Philip did through its famous buildings. His book is called The History of Rome in 12 Buildings, a travel companion to the hidden secrets of the Eternal City. You can learn more about Philip and his other books on Roman history at his website. It's philipbarleg.com. 
and that's Philip with two L's, and Barlag is spelled B-A-R-L-A-G. Okay, Philip, I'd love to just kind of hit a few of these buildings that I think we could uh, delve into a little deeper. First of all, I am just really inspired by the Via Sacra. Um, it's amazing to think about it because everybody who goes to Rome uh, as a sightseer will go to the Forum, the old marketplace, and the main street right through the Forum got big stones that are the original uh, paving stones, and that's the, the sacred way. And it's our challenge to resurrect all that excitement from 2,000 years ago. Via Sacra kind of ties it together, doesn't it? It really does. And the ancient Romans were a very superstitious people, very pious people. Uh, the temples that they erected to their gods were very important to their ceremonial life. They were also host to their civic meetings. The Via Sacra takes you right through the heart of ancient Rome into the middle of civic life 2,000 years ago, and you're walking in the same place of some of the most brilliant people that history has ever known. And what you rightly point out in your book, look down, appreciate those those paving stones. And, and I like the, the last sentence in that chapter, Rome didn't arrive at the top of the world order, it walked there. And you walked the empire, uh, stretching from, what, Jerusalem to to Portugal with with beautifully paved roads and infrastructure was critical and fundamental to the empire. And the center of all that was right there, the Via Sacra. That's right. I mean, Rome's, one of the Rome's greatest contributions to the world was its road system. They were extraordinary engineers. The infrastructure that they built in a lot of cases still works, still functions. Uh, underneath the forum is an ancient sewer duct, the Cloaca Maxima, uh, it still drains water off the forum. The area where the forum is was most likely originally a, a malaria-infested swamp. And so uh, the, the uh, ability uh, to really be a part of Rome's rise is also to participate in and celebrate its engineering genius. And the Via Sacra is a great testament to that particular genius of the Roman world. Now, Philip, the next um, spot I'd like to talk about that you feature in your book is the Arapaches, the, the Peace Arch. And uh, first of all, I, th- I think it's like one of the only post-World War II buildings in the center of Rome, the, the museum that contains this arch. And this arch just celebrates really the beginning of the Pax Romana, right, when they, when they finally quelled uh, all the different tribes and they established this peace. It wasn't a polite peace. It was a peace through strength and brutality, frankly. But it was a 200-year period when there was stability and capable rule and that's kind of a big deal if you're the capital of the empire. And this Arapachus is really a, a place to think about that. Yeah, there's a great adage. The uh, the Romans made a desert and called it peace. And in their conquests to expand from this little city on the Tiber River to become the commanders of the known world, there's obviously a lot of conflict involved in that. But the Emperor Augustus, for various political reasons, sought to transition from expansion to governance and to integrate the various communities that Rome had conquered into the Roman system. Uh, It's part Mm. of why Rome and his institution survived for so long. And the Arapaches is the altar to the Augustan peace. It's a massive propaganda symbol. It's his declaration of being the one who could bring peace to the world. It's also his way of saying that he had conquered everyone worth conquering. Uh, In the sculptural frieze, which is still intact in many ways, contains carvings of a lot of the members of the royal family. So you're just looking up at Augustus, you're looking at his wife, Livia, you're looking at his general, Marcus Agrippa, mm. and uh, you're, you're kind of communing with the attempt to build and preserve a dynasty to celebrate the propaganda of the emperor to reflect on the expansion of the Roman Empire. It's all there in, in the Arapaches. 
And yes, you're right. It's in this beautiful steel and glass modern building containing this 2,000-year-old ancient monument. And the contracts between those two styles of of architecture is really is really quite and profound. It, and it's frankly rarely visited. It's just a 10-minute walk from the Pantheon or so. And it is really worth checking out. Ara Pacis, P-A-C-I-S. Uh, and as Philip said, it's just all about propaganda. The Romans didn't do this because they loved art. They did this because they had to keep the people orderly. All right, Philip, the Colosseum is something that we all know and, and find interesting. What is something that a lot of people don't know about the Colosseum and that they should know about the Colosseum? Where the name comes from. The name itself references a giant statue that stood on the site where, in fact, the pediment of the that statue can still be seen by a modern visitor today. But the statue was not of any of the later emperors. It was not of the family that built the Colosseum. It was of Nero, and it was styled on the Colossus of Rhodes. Thus, the name, the Colosseum, was a sort of shorthand for local Romans, a geographic reference. It was the building by the Colossus, uh, uh. and actually it honored it honored Nero, uh, who was toppled, was felled. His eventual successor drained a lake, built the Colosseum on top of it, lopped off the head of Nero, put his own head on the statue. But that statue, the Colossus, is where the name comes from. So just like Domitian is hiding in the Piazza Navana, Nero, Nero himself, infamous Nero, his shadow stands right in front of the building today. And when you stand there between the Colosseum and the Forum and you know what stood there, that colossal statue, you just think of the magnificence of Rome. And then you look at the Colosseum itself and you just celebrate the engineering. I mean, I think it had 50,000 numbered seats. They could fill it and empty it as quickly and efficiently as we fill and empty our super stadiums. And uh, the Romans were all about engineering and organizing for the masses. Philip Barlag uncovers the stories behind Rome's most important architecture in his book, The History of Rome in 12 Buildings. Philip's also written The Leadership Genius of Julius Caesar and Evil Roman Emperors, The Shocking History of Ancient Rome's Most Wicked Rulers. He's also the Senior Talent Director for Masterclass. By the way, a special thanks to our colleagues at Georgia Public Broadcasting for their help today. Uh, The next stop in your book that I'd like to visit is the Pantheon, because for me, the Pantheon, when you step into that building, it gives you a feeling for the magnificence and the splendor of Rome better than any other building. Why did you include the Pantheon in your book? Well, for the very same reason, nothing brings you back to the spirit of what it was like to be in that city at that time, quite like being inside the Pantheon. Of course, it's had its own history since. There are Christian martyrs and artists and kings and queens interred within. It has been reappropriated with Christian iconography in a way that would not have been familiar at the time. And yet you still feel such a visceral reaction, such a strong and palpable reaction to the atmosphere of ancient Rome when you're there. You really do. And, and a trick for all of us travelers is to go early or go late because every cruiser, every tour group, they're going to go into the Pantheon. And if you go early or late, you can be there all alone. And you see the, the light, sh- the beam coming through that oculus, that, that hole in the roof, and this greatest dome, the dome that inspired so many domes to follow. And, of course, it survived because it became a church almost immediately after it was a pantheon for all the pagan gods. And uh, it's a reminder that Constantine made Christianity the legal religion of right. the empire in the early 300s, mm-hmm. and Rome didn't fall until the late 400s. So 150 years or so, the empire was Christian, and uh, you write about how Constantine sent his 
his dear mother, what was she, 80 years old, to go to the Holy Land and bring back some souvenirs. And she brought back the steps that Jesus was supposed to have walked on when he went up to um, on that fateful meeting with Pontius Pilate. It's amazing to think that for like 1,700 years, pilgrims have been climbing those steps on their knees and arrive at this room on the top, that, that, that sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And to this day, pilgrims are climbing it on their knees. Uh, what was your experience at the, at the Scala Santa? It was deeply moving for me. Um, I was raised Catholic, and I grew up uh, with a great admiration for Roman history. You put those two things together, and right there, communing with the most sacred figure in all of yeah. Christianity, uh, the steps themselves spent a lot of their life, if you will, cloistered away in the imperial palace of Constantine and, and of his family in the in the Lateran Palace, some of the remains of which uh, still exist. And of course, the San Giovanni and Laterano right across the street, very moving, um, massive, important cathedral. When the steps were brought out of the crumbling Lateran Palace and put for the public to be able to use, it was really, it was really a, a, a deeply meaningful experience. But what's so interesting is it's not just for Christians. If you go, uh, there were, I, I met Muslims in line. I met um, Jews in line. I met people of all yeah. faiths from all nations each wanting to be able to have that same spiritual experience. It, it's really amazing how it, it, the steps themselves, central to Christian mythology, religion, faith, whatever word you care to use, still convene people in a truly multicultural way in a multicultural city. It's very profound. And it's important for travelers to be able to not just be bystanders, but they can experience it themselves. Yes, and it's a grueling experience. I mean, it, 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 there's 28 it's painful. of them. It was painful. It's a great example of how with your book, Rome in 12 Buildings, you can bring to life the history and the humanity of so much of what a lot of people just see as dusty rubble. It's, it's dusty rubble unless you understand the context and the story, and then you can bring it together. And uh, Philip, that's kind of the mission, I would think, of your book. And what, is your, what, what do you hope people take away from, from having read your book? Roman history is long, it's complicated, but it is also accessible. And there's a lot to know, but there's a lot that's knowable. There are infinite narratives. You can take the accumulation of information that we have about Rome and put them into multiple different types of stories. My book is just one of those stories. And I just, I would love to invite people to follow the passion for Roman history in the same way that I did. And if the book can be a small part of inviting people on that journey, then that's a massive success for me. Philip Barleg, thanks so much for joining us and best wishes with your travels and your teaching. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed our chat. Put your own impressions of Rome in an original haiku poem. Here's what some of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners have sent us from a link at ricksteves.com radio. Mary Spadoni of Astoria, New York, sends us these haiku from her honeymoon in Rome. A Vespa zooms down a narrow cobblestone street. We speak in echoes. Bathed in candlelight, he lifts a glass of red wine. A smile, here's to us. To escape the crowds, we duck around a corner. He steals a kiss. Jeff in Denver fondly remembers where he stayed in Rome. Temporary home, little flat in Monte Rome. Casa Tiamo. Bruce Huang from Rockville, Maryland, thinks Rome's Piazza Navona is worth a haiku. Afternoon sun streams on fountain of four rivers. 
Bravo, Bernini. And Jim Cody of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, tells us about his visit to the Vatican. Rubbed St. Peter's toe, climbed stairs to St. Peter's crown. I earned gelato. Let's focus on the Rome of 500 years ago that Michelangelo lived in. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. E salve, sono Susanna Perrucchini da Roma e sono una guida di Rick Steves. I'm Susanna, Susanna Perrucchini from Rome and I travel with Rick Steves. And again in Italian, salve, sono Susanna da Roma e sono una guida per Rick Steves. The last time I was in Italy, it occurred to me that few pieces of art actually make a noise. But Michelangelo's art does. As you approach the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican Museum, you hear a commotion. It roars like a rushing river. And then when you step into that chapel, the people are everywhere. The excitement builds. The guards every five minutes have to calm the crowds with a big amplified shh. Michelangelo excites people. Michelangelo was a Florentine. He worked in Rome because... Well, when the Pope hires you, you can't really turn him down. But Rome was a rough-and-tumble, ramshackle city around uh, the year 1500 when Michelangelo was there. You know, it wasn't a very glorious place at that time for the Vatican to be, but they were stuck there because, you know, upon this rock, St. Peter, I will build my church, and so on. So Peter's tomb was there, the Vatican was there, and the Pope literally bought the artistic dream team to come down from Florence to Rome and help spiff up the city. Getting Michelangelo and all that marble and building that great dome and everything didn't come cheap. They kicked off a fundraising campaign into high gear, spread all the way across Europe. Of course, Martin Luther got wind of that, and here comes the Reformation. It was a heady time, and Michelangelo, he was right there. He had a huge impact on the Eternal City. Today, we're going to talk about that. I'm joined by Angela Nickerson. She's written a book called A Journey into Michelangelo's Rome. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, there was my tour guide swing through the heady times 500 years ago in Rome. Oh, that's absolutely true. Michelangelo's life seemed to just coincide with some really exciting things that were happening, both in terms of the city of Rome itself and then also in Italy. It was this nexus of incredible talent that was arising and you had the invention of the printing press in 1450. And so there was this promulgation of knowledge and understanding and a great interest in the classics. But then there was also all of this money to be spent. And people decided to spend it on the arts. So all of that together created this amazing environment. It was kind of this amazing stew for artists to live in. And Michelangelo was born just at the right time in the right place. Yeah. Michelangelo spent years in Rome embellishing the city pretty much for the needs of the church. In fact, though he always considered Florence his home, he spent more of his life in Rome than he did in Florence. So he really left an imprint on that city. It was sort of like going to a scuzzy, crummy city, wasn't it? I mean, wasn't all the elegance in Florence and, and these Florentines like had to wash their hands a lot and try to stay with their friends in Rome because it was a not quite as elegant and comfortable of a city? Well, definitely. Rome had suffered a lot during the Dark Ages. Um, it wasn't the beautiful city that it must have been during the height of the Roman Empire. It was a city where the Tiber River was just filled with filth, um, and the streets were filled with human excrement. And it, it was it was a dirty, disgusting city in many ways. But the popes knew 
that in order to hold on to their power, they had been threatened in the 13 and 1400s. At one point, there were several people claiming to be popes, and of course, the papacy had moved to Avignon, France. And so they knew in order to keep the papacy strong in Rome, they were going to have to turn Rome into a first-class city. And so they poured money into the city, into making it beautiful and into making it the kind of city that they envisioned as being appropriate for the seat of Christendom in Europe. You can see that, for example, um, Julius II decided that he was just going to build some straight streets in the city. And you see Via Giulia, which is um, very close to the Tiber River. It is the straightest street in Rome because he simply bulldozed a whole bunch of buildings and built a new street that was perfectly straight. It's pretty much the only one in the city. If you walk down Via Giulia, which is a wonderful place to walk, you get an insight into what some of these Renaissance popes longed for within their home city. Now, this was a time when humanism was running rampant. There was kind of a struggle between humanism and pre-Christian philosophy and medieval-style Christianity. And, you know, Michelangelo was sort of the cutting edge here. He was an intellect, and, and they sort of embraced humanism. But was it really at odds with Christianity, or could Christianity in the time of Michelangelo embrace humanism? Talk a little bit about that sort of philosophy slash theology that Michelangelo had to deal with when he was hired to do something for the Pope. Oh, Michelangelo had to be both a theologian and a philosopher at the same time. Unfortunately, he was a very gifted and intelligent thinker. He was greatly read. He had been tutored as a young man um, by a humanist. He spent much of his life reading and had great friends with whom he would have theological and philosophical discussions. But this wasn't uncommon because the advent of the printing press really brought all of these great works. They made them much more accessible to people. So he had to walk a very delicate line between what he believed philosophically and theologically and what the popes wanted. I kind of think that perhaps had Michelangelo lived somewhere else in Europe at the time, he might have ended up being a Lutheran because he disagreed with a lot of the things that the popes did. But fundamentally, he knew which side his bread was buttered on, (laughs) and he knew where his paychecks were coming from. So he had to be very careful about that. Well, he was decorating the pope's um, chapel, the Sistine Chapel, and it was due for a renovation, and the pope hires Michelangelo to do it, and we get the Sistine Chapel Uh, Let's talk about the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Here we have God giving Adam the spark of life. You know, the famous uh, scene that's in the bottom of fancy swimming pools and so on. And uh, (laughs) when when Michelangelo unveiled that impressive humanistic centerpiece of the Sistine ceiling, did that go over well with the Pope and the, the Pope's men who paid for this? It did initially because, of course, Julius II was the one who commissioned the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And Julius II was as much a humanist in many ways as Michelangelo. Um, they were they were kind of two peas in a pod. Hmm. And uh, this great display of of human bodies on the ceiling, there were some who disapproved of this, but largely it was enormously popular. It wasn't until 
after the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation that Michelangelo's penchant for nudity and the glory of the human form fell out of favor. And in his later years with the Council of um, Trent and some of the other political maneuverings that were happening, there was a great movement to go in and paint over many of the nudes in the Sistine Chapel. Um, And fortunately, the artists in Rome prevailed upon the the powers that be, and they didn't do it until after Michelangelo's death. Oh, my goodness. Um, That's a beautiful, thoughtful thing, not to let Michelangelo go through that indignity to have his paintings uh, covered up with with uh, little fancy uh, modern loincloths or whatever. Wasn't there a guy actually nicknamed Britches that was hired to to paint over <laughs> all of the, the penises on the uh, Last Judgment? Indeed. And he had been one of Michelangelo's um, assistants. Oh, and man. he was hired Say after his so. death. Oh, I know it's how terrible. Could he, how could he live with himself painting over Michelangelo's beautiful bodies? We're exploring Michelangelo's world and his masterpieces in Rome with Angela Nickerson right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Angela is the author of A Journey into Michelangelo's Rome. She also highlights Roman sites from Dan Brown's fiction in an online guide called Angels and Demons Rome, The Insider's Guide. It's on her website, piningforrome.com. Jan's listening in from Mountain House, California. Hey, Jan. I, I have a passion for anything Italian, and specifically Michelangelo, and I am curious as to why he relocated from Florence and when he was in the throes of everything and went to Rome. Well, he was a smart guy and he followed the money. Oh. He, he had great ambitions. Florence started to decline. It had been the center of all art and power. But with Lorenzo de' Medici's death and his son was not such a great ruler... And Michelangelo could read the writing on the wall, and he knew that a papal commission was the only commission that was going to really keep him financially secure for his life. And so he made his first trip to Rome trying to achieve that papal commission, Um, and he spent the rest of his life kind of balancing back and forth between Florence and Rome, wherever the money actually was. But in the end, he spent more of his life in Rome because that's where more of the money was. How interesting. Now, was he aware when he went to Rome that the focus of his talent would be on painting rather than sculpturing? No. He considered himself very much a sculptor. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, when he was given the commission to do the Sistine Chapel ceiling, he was not the only person who thought maybe he couldn't do it. Bramante, who was working on the St. Peter's Project at the time, said, oh, I can't even imagine. Why would you give this project to Michelangelo? He can't possibly do that. He's not a painter. But when the Pope says, please paint my ceiling, you have to Say, okay. <laughs> and Angela yeah. and Jen, when you look at the Sistine ceiling, when you look at those bodies and the musculature, you see a person whose passion is for sculpting. I mean, these are, he was a sculptor with a paintbrush when you look at his work, I believe. Oh, absolutely. I, he brought them to, to life, and it's amazing to me that somebody had so much talent. One human being was as gifted as he was, and we can enjoy that now. And it was a great gift to mankind. Jen, you bring up an interesting point. 
Uh, Angela, give me your take on this. I've always thought when Michelangelo's passion was for sculpting, it kind of fit his faith. He was humble in the presence of God. He was considered himself God's tool, and he thought the most noble art form was not being like a creator, like Leonardo, painting on a blank canvas, creating from nothing, but actually to reveal something that God put into the marble. Michelangelo actually believed that the figure was inside the marble, and what he needed to do was be inspired to chip away the excess and reveal the beauty that God put in that stone. Uh, I've heard that from guides in Italy. Does that make any sense to you, Angela? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, In fact, when you look at the way he sculpted, he didn't sculpt taking a block of marble and working around it. He sculpted from front to back. Just peeling it so away, blowing away the excess. literally revealing it. Wow. Yes. Now, how old was he when he did, say, David? When, or what, was one, what was his first masterpiece? How, how young was he when he made his first masterpiece? Well, his first masterpiece was the Pieta. Okay. Um, the Rome Pieta. And he was 24 years old. Now, think, at of, a, all time. think of a 24 year old you know and give him a hunk of a big block of marble and a chisel and say, you know, go to work. I mean, David must have been divinely inspired. I mean, it's, it's the only way that a 24 year old could, could create that thing. Absolutely. He, he was given God's hands to create. And what a gift it is to all of us. And I think when we look at David, we see that same sort of theme. I love the, the notion of looking at David. And when people first looked at Michelangelo's David, they said, well, the, the hand is too big and too developed. And, of course, the theology of David, the boy slaying the giant, was the little boy couldn't slay the giant, but God could slay the giant. And David was acting, uh, you know, with God. And it was actually God that powered that stone. And when we look at that overdeveloped, oversized hand on David, that's the hand of God. And that sort of fit the whole notion that Florence was uh, on God's side and able to rise above its bully, giant, Goliath-type city-state neighbors and and succeed. And I, I just love to psychoanalyze that. And that ties, again, this humanism, where when you look into the eyes of David, you're looking into, you know, medieval man coming out of the darkness and into the Renaissance and sizing up that bully of darkness and, and entering into a new world where they're much more confident. But you're also seeing that influence of... The classical sculpture, which Michelangelo, especially when he was in Rome, but also in Florence, was able to take time and to study because, of course, collecting the art of the ancient Romans became very, very popular during his lifetime. And so he was able to look back and look at those ancient sculptures and model and use them as a touchstone for his own work. Jan, thanks for your call. Well, thank you very much. Do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Michelangelo shows up in that reading by T.S. Eliot from his poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Angela Nickerson is taking us on a journey into Michelangelo's Rome right now on Travel with Rick Steves. That's also the title of her illustrated book, Angela also highlights the projects she's organizing at her home in Denver on her website, midmodernmama.com. And Shonda's on the phone in Sacramento, California. Shonda. Yes. I'm curious because I've been to Rome on a brief trip and I've seen Michelangelo's major works. I'm curious about, Angela, what are your favorites of his lesser known works? Uh, you know, his fingerprints are everywhere. 
But I have to say one of the places that I tell people not to miss is Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. It's a little church around the corner from the Pantheon. And in this church is Michelangelo's sculpture, The Risen Christ. It was highly loved at the time, and it is really overlooked now. But it is um, a figure of Christ, nude. At, at, at a later point, they added a bronze loincloth over his genitals. But he is coming out of the tomb and emerging. And it is a wonderful piece of art. It's just beautiful. And it's about 100 yards from the Pantheon. And the Pantheon is just inundated mm-hmm. with tourist crowds. And you step around the corner and you go into Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, one of the few Gothic churches in Rome, and you're all alone with a Michelangelo masterpiece. Oh, it's, it's totally true. And it's free. <laughs> Another free one is um, Moses, isn't it, in Peter and Jane's church? Absolutely. That is also free. And again, and that's a, no that's line. And that's 200 yards from the Colosseum. Everybody's packing into right. the Colosseum, and they're missing that. Another fun tip would be <laughs> if you're going to extend your sightseeing hours, you can see the great Michelangelo's for free without any crowds in the churches, which open at 7 in the morning whereas the national sites open at 9 or 10 o'clock. So you can beat those crowds, be in the cool of the early morning, and be all alone with Michelangelo if you know where to go. Absolutely. Nice. Thanks for your call, Shonda. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Angela Nickerson. Angela's written a book called A Journey into Michelangelo's Rome. Angela, how did your work on this book enable you to better appreciate the genius of Michelangelo? You know, I was familiar with all of the iconic images with the Pieta and the David and the great works of art. But I feel like in doing the research, I got to know the person behind it, too. His religious feelings, his philosophy, the friendships that he had. He was an incredibly loyal friend and employer. And getting to know the trials and tribulations of his life He just became a much more whole person to me, and certainly he was a genius. But beyond that, there was a man who felt things deeply, who understood things deeply, and who was keenly attuned and really shaped by the world that he was living in at the time. So if I pull this back to what helps a sightseer appreciate Michelangelo— To properly embrace the art, you really need to embrace the man who made it, and that means understanding the age in which he worked. You're able to understand and appreciate the Renaissance, and then the magic of Michelangelo becomes a highlight of your travels. Indeed. Angela Nickerson, thanks for giving us an insight into an artist that the more you know about him, the more you realize it's understandable why he's so many people's favorite. Thank you so much. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku describing your travel impressions. Details are at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebook to Italy has long been America's best-selling guidebook to any destination in Europe. We've just updated it, and it's in its 27th edition, and it's ready and raring to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Pick up a copy at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.